Chapter number two of Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cassie Christian. Love Affairs of the Courts of Europe by Thornton Hall. Chapter two. The Bonnie Prince's Bride. In the pageant of our history, there are few more attractive figures than that of Bonnie Prince Charlie, the yellow-haired laddie whose blue eyes made a slave of every woman who came under their magic, and whose genial, unaffected manners turned the veriest coward into a hero, ready to follow him to the death in that year of ill-fated romance, the Forty-Five. The very name of the Bonnie Prince, the hope of the fallen Stuarts, the idol of Scotland, leading a forlorn hope with laughter on his lips, now riding proudly at the head of his rabble army, now a fugitive Ishmael among the hills and caves of the highlands, but ever the last to lose heart, has a magic still to quicken the pulses. That later years proved the idol's feet to be of clay, that he fell from his pedestal to end his days an object of contempt and derision, only served to those who knew him in the pride of his youth to mingle pity with the glamour of romance that still surrounds his name. In the year 1772, when this story opens, Charles Edward, Count of Albany, had already travelled far on the downward road that led from the glory of Prestonpans to his drunkard's grave. A pitiful pensioner of France, who had known the ignominy of wearing fetters in a French prison, a social outcast whose royal pretensions were at best the subject of an amused tolerance, the laddie of the yellow hair had fallen so low that the brandy-bottle, which was his constant companion night and day, was his only solace. Picture him at this period, and mark the pathetic change which less than thirty years had wrought in the Stuart darling of the forty-five, when many a proud lady of Scotland would have given her life for a smile from his bonny face. A middle-aged man with dropsy in his limbs, and with the bloated face of the drunkard, dull thick silent-looking lips of purplish-red redder than the skin pale blue eyes tending to a watery grayness leaden vague sad but with angry streakings of red something inexpressibly sad gloomy helpless vacant and debased in the whole face such was this young chevalier when france took it into her head to make a pawn of him in the political chess game with england as a man he was beneath contempt as a king, well, he was a roi pauvre, but at least the royal house he represented might be made a useful weapon against the arrogant Hanoverian who sat on his father's throne. That rival stock must not be allowed to die out. His claims might weigh heavily some day in the scale between France and England. Charles Edward must marry and provide a worthier successor to his empty honors and thus it was that france came to the exiled prince with the seductive offer of a petty bride and a pension of forty thousand crowns a year the besotted charles jumped at the offer left his brandy-bottle and with the alacrity of a youthful lover rushed away to woo and win the bride who had been chosen for him and never surely there was such a grotesque wooing charles was a physical wreck of fifty-two his bride-elect had only seen nineteen summers the daughter of Prince Gustav Adolf of Stolberg and the Countess of Horn, Princess Louise, was kin to many of the greatest houses in Europe, from the Colonnas to Andorsini's to the Hohenzerns and Bruce's. In blood she was thus at least a match for her Stuart bridegroom. 
she had spent some years in the seclusion of a monastery and had emerged for her undesired trip to the altar a young woman of rare beauty and charm with glorious brown eyes the delicate tint of the wild rose in her dimpled cheeks a wealth of golden hair and a figure every line and movement of which was instinct with beauty and grace she was a fresh unspoilt child bubbling with gaiety and the joy of life and her dainty little head was full of the romance of sweet nineteen such then was the singularly contrasted couple beauty and the beast they were dubbed by many who stood together at the altar at macerata on good friday of the year seventeen seventy two the bridegroom looking hideous in his wedding suit of crimson silk in flaming contrast to the virginal white of his pretty victim it needed no such day of ill omen as a friday to inaugurate a union which could not have been otherwise than disastrous the union of a beautiful romantic girl eager to exploit the world of freedom and of pleasure and a drink-sodden man old enough to be her father for whom life had long lost all its illusions it is true that for a time charles edward was drawn from his bottle by the lure of a pretty and winsome wife who should if any power on earth could have made a man again of him she laughed indeed at his maudlin tales of past heroism and adventure in love and battle to her he was a plaster hero and she let him know it she was mated to a clown and a drunken clown to boot and well she would make the best of a bad bargain if her husband was the sorriest lover who ever poured thick-voiced flatteries into a girl-wife's ears there were others plenty of them who were eager to pay more acceptable homage to her and these men poets courtiers great men in art and letters flocked to her salon to bask in her beauty and be charmed by her wit after all she was a queen although she wore no crown she had a court although no royalties graced it from the pope to the king of france no monarch in europe would recognize her husband's kingship but at such neglect the offspring of jealousy of course she only smiled she could indeed have been moderately happy in her girlish light-hearted way if her husband had not been such an impossible person as for charles edward he soon wearied of a bride who did nothing but laugh at him and who was so ready to escape from his obnoxious presence to the company of more congenial admirers he returned to his brandy-bottle and alternated between a fuddled brain and moods of wild jealousy he would not allow his wife to leave the door without his escort if she refused to accompany him he turned the key in her bedroom door to which the only access was through his own room he took her occasionally to the theatre or opera his brandy-bottle always making a third for company before the performance was half through he was snoring stertorously on the couch which he had insisted on having in his box and more often than not was borne to his carriage for the journey home helplessly drunk and this within the first year of his wedded life if any woman had excuse for seeking elsewhere the love she could not find in her husband it was louise of albany there were dames in plenty in rome where they were living now who not content with devoted husbands had their suspeos to play the lover to them but louise sought no such questionable escape from her unhappiness her books and the clever men who thronged her salon were all the solace she asked and under temptations such as few women of that country and day would have resisted she carried the shield of a blameless life from rome the countess and her husband fared to florence in seventeen seventy four and here matters went from bad to worse charles was now seldom sober day or night and his jealousy often found expression in filthy abuse and cowardly assaults hitherto he had been simply disgusting now he was a constant menace even to her life she lived in hourly fear of his brutality 
but in her darkest hour sunshine came again into her life with the coming of vittorio alfieri whose name was to be linked with hers for so many years at this time alfieri was in the very prime of his splendid manhood one of the handsomest and most fascinating men in all europe some four years older than herself he was a tall stalwart soldierly man blue-eyed and auburn-haired an aristocrat to his fingertips a daring horseman a poet and a man of rare culture just the man to set any woman's heart aflutter as he had already done in most of the capitals of the continent he was a spoilt child of fortune this italian poet and soldier a man who had drunk deep the cup of life and to whom all conquest came with such fatal ease that already he had drained life dry of its pleasures such was the man who one autumn day in the year seventeen seventy seven came into the unhappy life of the countess of albany still full of the passions and yearnings of youth it was surely fate that thus brought together those two young people of kindred tastes and kindred disillusions and we cannot wonder that of that first meeting alfieri should write at last i had met the one woman whom i had sought so long the woman who could inspire my ambition and my work recognizing this and prizing so rare a treasure i gave myself up wholly to her those were happy days for the countess that followed this fateful meeting days of sweet communion of twin souls hours of stolen bliss when they could dwell apart in a region of high and ennobling thoughts while the besotted husband was sleeping off the effects of his drunken orgies in the next room to alfieri louise was indeed the anchor of his life giving stability to his vacillating nature and inspiring all that was best and noblest in him while to her the association with this splendid creature who so thoroughly understood and sympathized with her was the revelation of a new world thus three happy years passed and then the crisis came one night the prince in a mood of drunken madness inflamed my jealousy attacked his wife and after severely beating her flung her down on her bed and attempted to strangle her this was the crowning outrage of years of brutality she could not dared not spend another day with such a madman at any cost she must leave him and forever when morning came with alfieri's assistance the plan of escape was arranged and the company of a lady friend and also of her husband now scared and penitent but fearing to let her out of his sight she drove to a neighboring convent ostensibly to inspect the nun's needlework on reaching her destination she ran up the convent steps entered the building and the door was slammed and bolted behind her in the very face of charles edward who had followed as fast as his dropsical legs would carry him up the steps the prince blazing at such an outrage hammered fiercely at the door until at last the lady abbess herself showed her face at the grating and told him in no ambiguous words that he would not be allowed to enter his wife had come to her for protection and if he had any grievance he had better appeal to the duke of tuscany thus ended the tragic union of the bonny prince and his countess emancipation had come at last and while louise was now free to devote her life to her beloved alfieri her brutal husband was left for eight years to the company of his bottle and the ministrations of his natural daughter until a drunkard's grave at frascati closed over his misspent life the pity and the tragedy of it louise of albany and her poet lover were now free to link their lives at the altar but no such thought seems to have entered the head of either they were perfectly happy without the bond of the wedding ring of which the countess had such terrible memories and together they walked through life happy in each other and indifferent to the world's opinion now in florence now in rome living together in alsace drifting to paris and when the revolution drove them from the french capital seeking refuge in london 
where we find the uncrowned queen of england treating amicably with the usurper george in the royal box at the opera always inseparable and louise always clinging to the shreds of her royal dignity with the throne in her anteroom and your majesty on her servant's lips thus passed the careless happy years for countess and poet until in eighteen o three alfieri followed the bonny prince behind the veil and left a desolate louise to moan amid her tears there is no more happiness for me but louise was not left even now without the solace of a man's love which seemed as indispensable to her nature as the air she breathed before alfieri had been many months in his florence tomb his place by the countess's side had been taken by francois xavier faber a good-looking painter of only moderate gifts whose handsome face plausible tongue and sunny disposition soon made a captive of her middle-aged heart at the time when faber came thus into her life madame la comtesse had passed her fiftieth birthday youth and beauty had taken wings and passion if ever she had any for her relations with alfieri seemed to have been quite platonic had died down to its embers but a man's companionship and the homage were always necessary to her and in favor she found her ideal cavalier her salon now became more popular than in the days of her young wifehood it drew to it all the greatest men in europe men of world-wide fame in statesmanship letters and art all anxious to do homage to a woman of such culture with such rare gifts of conversation that she was now middle-aged stout and dowdy like a cook with pretty hands as stendhal said of her mattered nothing to her admirers many of whom remembered her in the days of her lovely youth she was in their eyes as much a queen as if she wore a crown and moreover she was a woman of magnetic charm and clever brain and thus with her books and her salon and her cavalier she spent the rest of her checkered life until the end came one day in eighteen twenty four and her last resting-place was as she wished it to be by the side of her beloved alfieri in the church of santa croce in florence midway between the tombs of michelangelo and machiavelli the two lovers sleep together their last sleep beneath a beautiful monument fashioned by canova's hands louise wife of the bonny prince as we still choose to remember him and vittorio alfieri to whom to quote his own words she was beyond all things beloved end of chapter two recording by cassie christian